All right. How are we doing? Good. We're a week into the new year, right? And so my guess is that if you go check, pull up your phone and check that promotions tab in your, I don't know, I don't have an iPhone, so I don't know if everyone has the promotions tab in their email, but I do. And if you click on that, my guess is what you'll see is over the last week or so, what you've seen is kind of this trickling of what I call the new year, new you deluge of promotions. And it can be for anything, like from Peloton all the way to Stitch Fix, all the way to HelloFresh. There's just these promotions that just say like, hey, it's the new year. You should do this. If you did this, then your whole life would be changed and everything you ever wanted in life would come true. You just need to commit. It's January. Do it. And God forbid you actually signed up for one of these things because then what I did is made the mistake of saying I would learn Italian this year and Duolingo keeps bugging me that I'm not doing enough in January. And it keeps telling me like, look, if you just did this, if you just committed, then you would hit your streak. You would get your prize. You would be better, do better. And all this is great. Like it's, it's a lot of energy. And can I, can I let you in on a little secret? Normally, normally, what churches do in January is they kind of model their sermon series off that. They think, well, I mean, everyone else is doing it. If Peloton is doing it, we can do it. And they make sermon series about like, new year, new year, best year ever. And we've been guilty of this for the last three years. That's what we've done. But this year, when we're starting to plan for January, something just didn't feel right about that message. And I'm not sure if it's COVID, and we're just exhausted, and that doesn't feel right. I'm not sure if it's our own development and thinking about that. But something changed over the last two years for us to realize that that message, that if you just did this one thing, if you just worked harder, tried harder, did better, that everything would be okay, it doesn't hold. It doesn't anchor you. It doesn't work. I mean, we all know that. It doesn't work when you wander into the middle of a global pandemic and your kid's school is closed for the 900th time this year. Or you've had the 15th conversation with your mother about how she needs to get vaccinated and she's still not doing it. Or, God forbid, your sister or your mother or your cousin or your friend is one of those people in the ICU beds and you don't know how to help them. This idea of new year, new you, just do better, just be better, just improve yourself. You are in charge of helping yourself. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in normal life either, outside of a pandemic. Because if you live long enough, and for many of you, you're fortunate to have lived a long time before realizing this, that it doesn't work because eventually you're going to get that negative pregnancy test. Or eventually, you're gonna get that news that you didn't want. Or the ALS diagnosis. Or your mom has to be checked into a home, or the dementia. Eventually, you'll realize that even though we sell this message of we're in charge, of we can help ourselves, and if we just did it, we could do better, that life doesn't actually work like that. And so 
for the last two years, I think collectively, and certainly as a church, we've been wondering and thinking about what does work? What does hold us? What does anchor us amidst life's storms and life's unpredictability? And this may be really self-aggrandizing, but um, I think the answer that I found, and I'm not alone, is that the thing that works is faith. I mean, think about the last two years, what's made sense in this pandemic and what hasn't, what you've tried to do, what other people have tried to do to solve it, and what holds true is just trust in something bigger than yourself. And what's confusing about faith, of course, is that we've been given lots of analogies about faith, and one of my least favorite ones, but one of the most common, is the idea of faith as a gift, like it's a present, like it's a noun, it's a thing that you hold and you receive. Maybe you received it sometime when you were young, maybe in college, maybe when you were older, but you received this gift. And I think that analogy is fine, I just don't think it's really helpful. Because faith, if we really look at it in the Bible, is actually trust. It's trust in something bigger than yourself. And because it's trust, it's actually a relationship between you and whatever that something bigger is, who we call God. And just like any relationship, just like your marriage and your relationship with your kids and your in-laws and your friends, it's a relationship that you have to work on. It's a relationship that's in your hands to grow. And that can feel really intimidating and overwhelming, which is why we're here to kind of show you some of those steps. How do you grow that relationship of faith? There's lots of ways, tons of ways. That's what all those next steps are about. But the one way that we're talking about during this series is prayer, which at the most simplest definition is communication from you to God, and usually from God back to you. It's communication. Just like in any relationship, we just happen to call it a fancy word, we call it prayer. Now here's the kind of glitch in the system. It's like, great, we understand we need to build our relationship, we understand faith is important, that's why we're here, we understand that we need to pray, blah, blah, blah. But how we approach prayer is often that we treat it as a thing to do instead of a relationship to build on. We treat prayer as a thing to do instead of a relationship to build on. And so our relationship with prayer ends up looking like a lot of the analogies Stephen used last week. One of the analogies was like the dentist. It's like the thing you do. You don't actually floss, but you just go and check in and like he checks your teeth and you're like, yeah, 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 I definitely prayed. I definitely flossed, but you really didn't. You're not sure if it counted. You go six months and then you check back in again. And so we have this relationship that can feel like the dentist, or it's the kitchen sink model, where you're just like, look, I'll take anything, I'll do anything, prayer works, great, let's try it. And you sit there in the middle, middle of a crisis and just throw anything at it, and prayer happens to be one of those things you get to do. And we have this relationship with prayer based on this habit or this idea that it's an action that we're doing. And so last week, what Stephen suggested is, let's get rid of the dentist, and let's get rid of the kitchen sink model. 
Let's, let's think of a new analogy. And his analogy was, based on Jesus' teaching, what if we approached prayer like a dinner party? Like it was a relationship. That's certainly how Jesus phrases it. What if we approached it like a dinner party? And our goal this week, this last week, was just to show up to the table. That was our goal. Just sit down once and attempt or try to pray. But here's what I know happened when you showed up to the table if you did, because it happens to me. You show up to this dinner party and it's kind of like you're driving up to your boss's boss's house. And you show up and there's this way too big mansion. You get really intimidated. You start to think about like, oh my God, what should I say? What should I do? They have really fancy nuts on the salad. I don't know if I can handle this. And you walk in and you start to like kind of change the way you're dressed a little bit. If you brought some lipstick, you'll go put it on in the mirror. Then you'll go inside and you'll start using like really crazy words like Hallowed and art in order to sound really fancy. And you don't really know what you're supposed to do, but the whole time you're just kind of faking it till you make it. Because that's how we think about prayer. I mean, it is God, and we're supposed to be holy and spiritual, so we have to sound different because God knows we are not holy or spiritual inside. And so you end up going to this dinner party, showing up to prayer, and you get nothing out of it. You get done, and you're like, man, that was definitely not what I was promised. That was not what I thought was going to happen. I didn't enjoy that. I don't really need to do that. And so we go back to that dentist and kitchen sink model, and we just treat prayer like something we have to do and not something that builds a relationship. So how do we do it differently? How do we get out of this loop of what we think prayer is? How do we change, for some of you, 20, 30, 40, 50, 90 years of how you've been taught about prayer? I think one of the answers for me to always go back about what we're supposed to do with prayer is to go back to Jesus' very clear instruction about how we're supposed to pray. The disciples never ask him like really helpful questions, but in this case, they they asked a very helpful question. They said, how do we pray? And Jesus, bless him, didn't give us a parable. He gave us an actual answer. And so we have clear instruction of how we're supposed to pray. So we're going to look at it today, and we're going to see what we can do differently about how we're approaching that dinner party in prayer. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 6. We're only going to be in it for a hot second. There's a lot of scripture today. Pull out your phone. I'm back preaching. Pull out your phones. Go to Matthew 6. And we're going to go down to this section. You'll notice quickly, and this is why it's helpful to have your Bible, you'll notice that this part is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's a very famous kind of summary of Jesus' teaching, and it's one of those sections. All right, so in Matthew 6, they ask him how to pray. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be, saved by, uh, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Let's stop right there. So it's interesting about this passage, actually. So you're like, great, that's really helpful information. But, like, we in the church don't pray like that. We actually don't follow this advice. We don't tell you, like, go in rooms and, like, close the door and pray because that's what Jesus said. We actually do prayer very differently. We like pray together in a room. And, and so that can be a little confusing about like, well, how am I supposed to take this? Is this the only kind of prayer that counts when I'm by myself? 
But I actually think there's another message in there. I don't think Jesus cared about physical location because he goes on to pray publicly several times. So it's not really the physical location that he's talking about in this instruction. What he's talking about is the motivation, right? He's comparing these two groups, the hypocrites, which are the Pharisees, right? Those who are religious and act only, who do it as performance, and then those who are more secretive, but those who are doing it for an actual relationship. And his point here is like, hey, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't show up to the dinner party and try to do all the showy stuff because it doesn't matter. Be like those who pray in secret. And then he gives us this key, and he does it twice. So I know it's important because remember when things are repeated in the Bible, especially in short passages, it's really meaningful. And Stephen talked about it a little last week, but where it says, your father. And I hate this translation in English because father, how many of you call your dad father? Right? No one calls their dad father. It's a very formal thing, right? It's not something we actually do in, in English. In fact, if you did call your dad father, we'd assume that there is some distance in your relationship, right? But father is not the actual word. The actual word is Abba. And Abba is still the same language that Aramaic, or now in Aramaic languages, use when children call their fathers a name. They call them Abba or Baba, right? So it's still the same name, but it's more equivalent to dad or daddy. And we don't put that up there, I think because we thought it would sound weird or something like that. Whoever decided to translate English, they picked father. But what's really important for us to recognize here is that Jesus is trying to change the game by telling us that our father, our daddy, is who we're supposed to be praying to. And that makes us feel silly as adults, and it makes us feel kind of self-conscious, like that's not really adult-like, but I think that's his point. And I know that this is his point because Jesus is kind of obsessed with this analogy that we, us, like all of us, are supposed to be like children. And he uses it here when he says your father, and he uses it right after this when he talks about, he tells them how to pray, and he starts off his prayer, the Lord's Prayer, saying, our father, daddy, right? And he uses that relational term, your or our, meaning it's a relational thing. But it's not just there that Jesus talks or makes this reference about children. Jesus does this a lot. And most famously, right, is in this passage in Mark. People love this passage, for rightfully so. But this passage in Mark 10 says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was mad. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then it's not just there. It's one other time in Mark and then again in Matthew, and he does it in Luke as well, but this one in, in Matthew. When at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then he called a little child over to sit among the disciples and said, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, you will definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who humble themselves like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's so interesting because it's not just that Jesus loves little children. I think that part's true. But there actually seems to be some expectation from Jesus that we become like children. 
Not just that children are great, but that we actually become children. It's almost like he's saying, hey, for this whole faith thing to work, for this relationship to work, you need to understand where you're starting from. And my friend, you are not equal to God. You are not schmoozing at an adult networking event. You are a child who is coming in to a dinner party and God gets down on the ground with you and pulls out the Fisher-Price tea plates and cheese sandwiches and sits down on the ground with you. And that is the relationship that you are building. Because you are a child and if you want this to work, if you want to enter this thing he calls the kingdom of heaven, which we define as like the abundant life, the life that is given for us to experience here and the life that is given for us to experience later when we die. If you want to experience that, then you need to become like a child. And 90% of us never feel comfortable praying like a child. It feels awkward and hard. I was talking to someone as I came in and he was explaining to me, like, I, I wish I could pray like a pastor. Like I could pray, it doesn't sound good, is what he said. And I thought, man, I think that's what everyone feels when they pray. And yet what I'm seeing here is Jesus is saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. I need you to become like a child in order for us to work. You need to know your place. And I wondered, you know, why? Why would Jesus use that analogy so much? And I think what he was tapping into is what a lot of spiritual teachers, Christian and non-Christian, have kind of understood over the last thousands of years. That when we're children, there is something about us that is our true essence, our true being, before anything happens to us. And then over time, as we grow up, as we learn to survive, we start to put on these masks, these versions of personality that protect us, that keep us safe. And what happens is that we become adults and we really don't remember how to take off the mask. One could argue that that is the spiritual journey, is learning how to take off those masks, how to become, in Jesus' words, like a child again. And so we're here, and we need to decide, okay, well, how? How? How do I become like a child? Great, I get it, I bought in, I understand. How do I become like a child? And I think what I take from these instructions, which were all about prayer, I think Jesus is saying, you need to pray like a child in order to become like a child. It's one way to start to become like a child. And so today, the remainder of our time, we're gonna go over some ways and reminders. You know this stuff, but it's gonna be reminders for you of how children pray, okay? So the first one, we need to ask like a child. Do you know how children ask? I have three of them. I'm very aware how children ask. We just got out of peak asking season, right? Children ask, and the craziest thing, so have you ever watched kids, like, as a parent or someone else, on Santa's lap, and you're, like, sitting there as a parent, you're like, please sound more grateful and more humble, please sound more grateful and more humble, and then they get up there, and they're like, I want the Spinosaurus, and the da 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 and you're like, that, that was nothing. You just flat out asked what you wanted. There was no, like, cushion for that. There was no, like, hey, Santa, how are you doing? So glad you're here. No relationship building. It was just a flat-out ask. 
And it's embarrassing for us adults because we know that like, that's not how you play the game. That's not how you play the game. You've got to do it a little differently if you're going to get what you want. But children don't care. They ask, and they ask repeatedly, and they ask often, and they ask without pretense. Nothing. They don't need an explanation for why they need this or why they want that. God, as adults, we sit there in our purse sometimes, and we try to, like, evaluate whether it's a thing worth asking for. Should I really be wanting this? I mean, if I really believed in God, then I wouldn't pray for their health. Like, I, would just, I just would know that God would fix it. Or if I really wanted to, this promotion, that feels a, a little bit conceited to me, so I'm not going to ask for that. Ask like a child. How would a child ask for the things that you want? He or she would make a list and say them without thinking about it, without wondering if they should want it. They ask for things, and I think what's interesting is they ask about things, right? We were in North Park yesterday in the food court, and my son saw this group of girls, middle school girls, who had a birthday cake. And it was a new concept for him, thank you, COVID, that birthday parties exist. And he, he was sitting there, and he was like, I'm, I'm going to go ask them why they have that cake. And I was like trying to explain why that was not a socially appropriate action. Um, but like at the end of the day, like he was like, no, I just, I get to ask that. Like I'm allowed to ask. I'm allowed to ask about things. Have you ever tried to ask God, why is this happening? What is going on? Do you know if the Psalms are 90% about why? Job is 90% about why? You are allowed and encouraged to ask about things and for things, like a child. And Jesus reassures us of this, I think, in Matthew 7. He's talking again. It's still in that same notion. So Matthew 6 is what we read before. It's still about prayer a little bit. And this is what he says. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I don't think Jesus is promising that our prayers will be answered in the ways that I want, but what I do think he's asking is like, look, you've got to ask. You've got to be like that son asking for bread. You've got to know that you are allowed to ask for things and about things like a kid. And that leads us into the second thing that I think we need to do, which is believe like a child. Do you, do you like, have you talked to a kid recently? They, there's this kind of persistence in them. They believe so deeply and so confidently that their parents will give them what they ask for, that all they need to do is just keep asking and just keep pestering, right? There's just this belief and this faith that like, no, I, I, I will get this. I will. It'll happen. It'll happen. My, my daughter is kind of the queen of this and has mastered the art of pestering. But she just like deeply believes that like, if she wants chocolate milk, I'm going to give her chocolate milk. Like it is deep in her bones that like, no, there's no way. My mom loves me. My mom is good. She's going to give me things. I'm going to keep asking. And she does, because she believes so firmly in our love that it never occurs to her not to believe. And what's interesting in Scripture is there are two instances 
And I love these stories of when Jesus gets pestered so much. And in those two stories, he makes an exclamation that he doesn't make anywhere else. And the first one is with a Gentile, Roman centurion, who comes to him and asks for someone to be healed in his house. And the Roman says, like, hey, you don't even need to go there. Like, just say the word and, and he'll be healed. And the Roman just, like, keeps arguing about why. Jesus just needs, just needs to say something and he'll be healed. And then Jesus says, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Such great faith. It wasn't this mystery about what it meant to believe to the Roman centurion. He just believed. Jesus is good. He heals people. He'll heal my person. And the same thing happens in a different story with a woman, a Canaanite woman. And she comes to beg for Jesus to heal her daughter. And this is a really famous and kind of complicated story in the Bible. And there's this inner, inter, uh, this exchange between Jesus and her about healing and whether she's part of Israel, she's not part of Israel, so should she be healed? And this lady comes back with a kind of saucy answer and is like, even dogs eat from crumbs of your table, which means like, even I should get good gifts. And Jesus' response to that is pretty crazy. And he says, woman, you have great faith. Your request has been granted. Great faith your persistence, the fact that you just keep asking, the fact that you believe so deeply, even though you don't know me, that I am good and I will give you good things, that is enough to bring healing. One could argue that the centurion and this woman, they act like children. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing. Like, they were not following social norms. They were not, like, respectful or, like, not asking questions. When Jesus said no, they didn't, like, just go away as they should have. They just kept asking, and yet Jesus calls two people in Scripture those who have great faith, and it's these guys. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? What do we have to learn of what it means to believe so fiercely in something like children? And the last one is to play like a child. And I mean this loosely and metaphorically, of course. You see... So often, y'all, we have been trained that prayer, because it's a form of communication, has to like go through these editing cycles, right? Because that's what every other communication we have goes through. We, we think we have to like revise it a million times. Have you ever read Paul's letters? Like they are the most disorganized mess of prayer you have ever read. Like, he starts off and is, like, praising something, then he'll go into this lecture, then he'll come out of it, then he'll say something else, then he'll go back into it, then he'll pray. It's just like this meandering weave of prayers. In fact, that's where we get this this phrase that can be confusing called pray without ceasing. The idea that you're constantly in this mode of prayer directing your attention towards God. But that's not possible if you have an email of prayer that you're re-editing all the time so it sounds better. What would it look like for you to sit down and just pray and be okay that your grocery list comes into your head or the errand comes into your head and be fine with it and treat it like play? Kids don't get bothered by that. It doesn't bother them when their play is interrupted or not perfect. There isn't a perfection. And I remember this quote always when I'm thinking about this, like, 
Jesus doesn't say, come to me all who have their perfect together prayer life, those who have all their points lined up, those who have researched and know how to pray well. He says, come to me those who are weary. And I think sometimes life makes us so weary that we forget that there are no stakes in this, that Jesus has taken away those stakes and all we're asked to do is just show up. So, as we're going into this next week, I want us to consider what it would look like to pray like children, to become like children in our prayer, to get those adult voices, those masks out of our head because Jesus told us that we are to become like children if we are to enter the kingdom of God. And I'll leave you with this last quote from C.S. Lewis. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. The reason that we pray has very little to do with God's sanctification and glorification. He can do that on his own. Thank you very much. It has everything to do with your heart. If you want change that actually works, that is not of the self-help variety, that is not of the self-improvement variety, then start praying. And don't think about it too much. Set timers, set alarms, pray for five minutes at first. And don't judge yourself when you think of other things other than God. We all do. All of us do. So today, to close out, we're going to do something that's going to make you deeply uncomfortable, and I'm thrilled about that, okay? So what we're going to do is the band's going to come up, and we are going to practice praying, guys. Aren't you so excited that you came here? Now all of y'all are like, ugh. So what I mean by that is the band's going to play a lot longer than they normally do. We are going to take time personally and practice praying, Kit. Teenagers, kids, y'all too. You can get out your phones, you can do it on, you can write it down. That makes it less awkward, guys. Just write it down. If that doesn't work for you, you can close your eyes and just sit there. If you're just like, I want no part of this, just get on your phone, I don't care. But here's what I want you to practice. I want you to go into it without, like don't even worry about what you say or what's happening. God doesn't care about that. Act like it's your kid or you're a kid or it's your nephew or niece or grandkid. What would they say when they came to you? And you wouldn't judge them. Start praying. We're going to take a few minutes of doing this on our own. And then we'll kind of close out with the end of the song. We'll stand to sing it, okay? Um, one more word of advice that is from a beloved author that I know. She says, when you don't know what to pray, there's only three real prayers. Help, thanks, and wow. So if you don't know where to start, start with one of those. Help, thanks, and wow. All right, let us pray. The ushers can come forward.